This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Nicene Creed. Our scripture reading is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And shall we pray? Glorious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your people. You have washed us in the blood of the Lamb. You have given us the gift of your Spirit. And we pray now that we'd be a listening people, an attentive people, a receptive people, to hear what you have to say to us through your Word and to accept what you declare over us as your church. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This afternoon, we are meditating together on the Nicene Creed. We've been slowly going through this ancient creed of the church, not because we believe it is in any way above Scripture or even beside Scripture, but we accept it as a faithful, authoritative summary of the apostolic message. And after working through this initial sections of the creed on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we're talking today on... The Church of Jesus Christ. And we're meditating on this one sentence of the Creed, which should appear momentarily behind me. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And I have to say, there is probably nothing in the Creed that is harder to confess our faith in than the church. It's one thing to confess our faith in God the Father as creator, as Jesus, 
the God-man who redeems us as the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us because we're confessing our faith in what is perfect and what is infinite. And now we come to the church and... Really, nothing is more feeble, compromised, distracted, corrupt, sinful, and even abusive than the church, it seems. And some of you may be here having been deeply hurt or burnt by the church, and you are suspicious, and you are cynical. And I think if any of us have been Christians for any length of time, we bear some of the scars that our brothers and sisters have done to us. Michelle and I were just talking this week about wounds we received over 10 years ago that we're still working through. And it takes a great deal of faith to believe in the church, does it not? And I think it was very wise of the fathers at Nicaea and Constantinople to put this line at this point in the creed. Because we do not begin our confession with belief in the church. It's only after we have laid the foundation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only after we have fixed our eyes on what the triune God is and what he's doing in the world, only then... Can we confess our belief in the church? Because our faith is not in some dubious human project led by leaders, however charismatic, however gifted, whatever humongous geniuses they might be, we are confessing that the church is at the very center of God's saving plan to unite all things in Christ Jesus. And though... We don't have too much time today to really dig into our passage in Ephesians. And for those of you who are enraged that we're not doing these deep expository messages, we will get back to that. But I just want you to notice how even in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, there is a deeply Trinitarian shape to it. Notice verse 18. Through him, through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And in verse 22... In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. When we look at the church, we are looking at a people and a place that is dearly beloved by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God is profoundly present in the weakness, even in the sinfulness and brokenness of his church. And when we read the New Testament, we discover that membership in the church is not optional. It's not an interesting accessory that's just a personal choice or an add-on to my own individual relationship with Jesus. Through Christ, I've been reconciled not just to God to have a relationship with him, but all these walls of hostility and enmity with others have been broken down. And since I am a child of God... If I dare to call myself a son or a daughter of God, I have to recognize that my father has other children. He has other sons and daughters, and therefore, I am in relationship to them as my brothers and sisters. We cannot say, I love Jesus, but I dislike his church. It'd be like you saying, I love Bart and I want to be his friend, but really, Michelle, I would really prefer that he did not bring her along 
on any outings together. I know this is highly unrealistic, and the reverse is much more likely to be true, but I'm the one preaching today, so I get to make up these stories. Imagine if you only wanted to be friends with me, but you despised and disliked my wife and wanted nothing to do with her. And in fact, when we spent time together, you were constantly moaning and complaining about what a terrible, sinful wretch she is. That would be deeply offensive to me. And we simply could not be friends if that was the situation, right? We come together because we are one. And the same thing is true of Jesus and his church. Our Lord loves the church. She is unutterably precious to him. So much so that he gave his own life to purchase her and redeem her. And I think if we have really drawn close to Jesus, if we are really filled with the spirit of Christ, there's something within us that longs for fellowship and relationship with others to be part of God's family. And it's by faith and only by faith, along with a large helping of hope and love, that we can say we believe in the church because we believe in the God who is created and redeemed and is at work in the church. And then, by the Holy Spirit, when we begin to have the eyes of Jesus, we see the church as her beloved sees her. Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners, as Song of Songs describes Christ's relationship with his church, with his bride. Here we are today, confessing the historic faith in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Four marks of the church. Four marks given to her, let me emphasize, given to her by God. The church is one. Sin divides people. It shatters relationships. And you see in the book of Genesis that hardly are Adam and Eve out of the garden. Then Cain is clubbing his brother over the head with a rock. Sin divides people. And in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, A Bus Trip from Heaven to Hell, I believe it's called, in his imagination, he describes hell as people constantly moving further and further away from each other into the infinite blackness because sinners who are totally given up to their sin cannot abide being with each other. And Jesus was sent by the Father to make reconciliation. To break the torn, broken bonds between humanity and its creator, but also to repair the relationships that human beings are meant to have with each other. And in the gospel, Jesus on the cross makes atonement. He makes peace with God and he destroys the enmity between God and his creators. But here Paul is saying in Ephesians, something more is actually happening. The arms of the cross also stretch outwards. And Christ's atoning work also utterly destroys enmity between human beings. Paul here is focused on this long-standing hatred between Jew and Gentile. The Jews, Israel, were chosen. They were elected by God to be a light to the nations. They were blessed to be a blessing, but they became selfish and narrow and arrogant and exclusive and hateful. 
And Jesus came to destroy this wall of ethnic and racial and religious hatred and to take these two peoples and make them one. Verse 14, his purpose was to create one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. There's only one people of God. And the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, has now grown and expanded. And we Gentiles have been grafted in to God's new society. And this is a little outpost, TICF, we're a little outpost of God's global church where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. That is God's gift to us. That is God's creation. And we do not create unity in the church with all our energetic programs and ecumenical efforts. We simply recognize what God has already done in Jesus. And if I am refusing to be one with my brother or sister, I am living a lie and I am calling God a liar. We are one. And when we're baptized into Christ Jesus and united with him, we're brought into God's new humanity, the beginning of a new race under Jesus, the second and the last Adam, that God is using to populate his new creation. And therefore, everyone who belongs to Jesus is my brother and is my sister. And if I reject anyone who has put their faith in Christ and who is born from above by the Spirit, I am grieving and I am wounding the heart of God. Who am I? To reject the one whom Christ has accepted. How arrogant of me to receive God's forgiveness and grace for myself. And then attempt to hoard it and be angry that God has brought other sinners into his family. And I feel like this church, this small but weird and somewhat bizarre church of people from all these different nations and, and, and ethnic backgrounds and also different denominations and traditions. We are a small, imperfect, yet very real expression of the unity that God has created in Christ Jesus. We are one only because we are gathering together around Christ. Look around at this room. You have nothing in common with these strange people except for Jesus, right? Don't you find it hard to make small talk with other people in this church? We have nothing in common except that we've been purchased by Jesus and we confess him as our Lord. And just like the spokes in the bicycle wheel are closest when they're at the center, at the hub, so Christians are closest when we gather around Jesus. And that is why it is vital for this church that we center everything around Christ. And we surrender all secondary identities and all subsidiary ideas of who we are, our race, our gender, our class, our educational attainments, whatever it is, we set all those things aside and we say, Jesus is supreme. And it is his name written on our foreheads that tells us who we are and also who we 
belong to. And wherever the Holy Spirit is present, wherever the spirit of Pentecost is truly poured out, there will be a profound and miraculous healing of divisions and like a leaping across the chasm to recognize those who also bear the image of Jesus. I want to share with you something from a book I was going to mention last week. This is a book on the Holy Spirit called Come Creator Spirit. The author's name is Raniero Cantalamessa. I'm sharing this just because it's really fun to say that name for one. A beautiful Italian name. This is... Um, Easily the best book on the Holy Spirit I've read, Come Creator Spirit. Cantalamessa is a Roman Catholic Franciscan friar. Since 1980, he's been the official preacher to the papal household. He's the only person who's allowed to preach to the Pope. There's a few things I would enjoy saying to Pope Francis. This is the only one who's allowed to do it. And he's from kind of the charismatic wing of the Roman Catholic Church. He kind of looks like Papa Smurf. He's got like this big smile and a red cardinal's cap and this lovely white beard. This is someone who's genuinely filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to this from a Roman Catholic perspective. He writes, There is a question that arises in the minds of many Catholics today, and it is this. There's a multitude of people who are baptized in the same church as I, who are also Roman Catholics. But they have no interest in Christ whatsoever, and they're only nominal Christians. Now... Can I, as a Roman Catholic, see myself as more in communion with them than with the great number of those who, though they belong to other churches, believe in the same basic truths as I believe, who love Jesus to the point of giving their life for him, and who live and work in the power of the Holy Spirit? He goes on to say that we need to say that the Holy Spirit is at work today where we find lively enthusiasm for Christian unity, where people work for it and where they are willing to suffer to achieve it. Because the Spirit, who was able to gather Jews and Gentiles, slave and free into one single body, is well able today to gather together into one body, Catholics and Protestants, Western churches and Eastern, Roman and Orthodox. And I feel, standing on the other side of that great historic divide, not that there are not reasons for that divide, not that there are not serious doctrinal issues between us and our Catholics and Orthodox brothers and sisters, we still need to recognize these are people who confess, many of them deeply from the heart, that Jesus died for their sins, and they've received new life in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are one body. And if divisions are necessary and unavoidable in some way, we still must grieve them. Because Christ's prayer for his church is that we be one. And wherever fellowship is broken, the gospel is being somehow diminished. And our witness fails in some way when we are apart from each other. In Christ, there is no east or west. There is no north or south in him. There's one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. And as true hearts everywhere find their high communion in Jesus, we join our hands together in one family confessing everyone who confesses Christ is kin to me, is my brother, and is my sister.
The church is one because Christ only has one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over us all. Now, of course, these Jew-Gentile issues that Paul talks about in Ephesians are not exactly hot burner issues today, at least not in this church. But we live in a world torn apart by racism and xenophobia and hatred and fear of the immigrant and the refugee and the migrants, of people who have different color skin than I do or who speak a different language. And, of course, religious smugness and superiority is a huge issue today, which we as Christians need to confess and repent of. I grew up in a very small kind of Dutch Reformed sect in Canada, maybe 15,000 people, and by golly, we were convinced that we were the one true church, that the way was very narrow indeed, and we were the only ones found worthy of fitting through it. And man, it feels great to sit in the pew and hear sermons against other kinds of Christians, doesn't it? Thank God we are the chosen ones. Thank God we are the ones who are worthy. And I believe that attitude is deeply contrary to the spirit of Jesus. And if we really do believe that in some way we're closer to God, as though the gospel that we profess is is pure, that the doctrine we have is, is more solid, the gifts we have more rich and more real... If that is really true, then we have the heavier responsibility to act in love. If we believe that we are the ones who are near, then we are the ones who should be reaching out to those who are far off and drawing them in as the older brother in Jesus' parable ought to have done for his lost younger sibling. Unity is a gift from God. It's what Jesus declares and creates over his church. And yet, as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, we are called to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because unity in the church is always threatened by sin within. All of us have evil tendencies to break relationship through pride, through envy, through jealousy, through gossip, through bitterness, through complaining. It takes very little effort at all to feel resentment against the person sitting beside you or behind you. This is what Jesus says over us. And now we are called by the Holy Spirit to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. This church is fragile. Humanly speaking, this church is fragile. And it would be very easy for us to be torn apart for some stupid conflict to break out. And for what we enjoy now to be shattered. And each of us needs to be keeping a guard on ourselves. Am I building relationship? Am I reaching out in love to my brothers and sisters? Am I offering myself to God to express the oneness of the church? Or am I allowing small, petty, selfish things to break apart what God is doing? We believe in one church. We also believe in a holy church. 
that doesn't stretch your faith. Few things will. Zach Niringia is a retired bishop in the Church of Uganda. Retired in order to address issues of social justice and corruption in that country. And in his book on the church, he asks, why is it that so many African countries who have been deeply evangelized, where there are churches everywhere, why do our countries struggle with such deep problems? Look at Rwanda, for example, which boasted of being the most Catholic country in the world. Horrific genocide where people in the same church, the same family, were hacking each other apart with machetes. Or in his own country of Uganda. Why is it that we're all Christians and yet there is corruption, there is theft, there's just a broken system where people are being oppressed. And he says, here's the only reason we can say the church is holy. Because the church derives its character, not from its membership, but from the one who called it into being. We say the church is holy, not because we are holy, but because Christ is holy. He is the holy one who makes holy. And whatever he touches, whenever he touches us leprous sinners, he makes us clean and holy. And that's why in Paul's letters, he addresses the people in the churches, as the saints, the holy ones. The church might be a huge mess, like the church in Corinth, where there is incest and bickering and lawsuits. But yet, Paul says, you are the saints because you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified by the grace of God. The church's holiness is not our achievement. It is God's gift. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any kind of blemish. Jesus has died to make us holy as his people. To be holy is to be elected and chosen by God for worship and fellowship. It's God taking us apart and consecrating us as his priests to enjoy communion with him. So the whole church, as Peter says, is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we can declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Worship is the highest ministry of the church. This is the one thing we will be doing forever and ever. And though we have secondary human aims, ministry to each other and ministry to the world, all those things are secondary because the church ultimately exists for God. We are his possession and our calling is to offer ourselves up to him in worship, echoing the cry of the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And in our passage, Paul says that we are called to be a holy temple in the Lord built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Holiness is not an end in itself. Holiness as an end in itself, there's nothing more constricting and unpleasant and just itchy than holiness for its own sake. Holiness is our preparation to receive the divine presence. 
to be there waiting as God's Shekinah glory cloud overshadows and then fills the temple as we all cry out, glory, glory. God has declared us. He has made us a holy people. And now we're called by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to live up to what God has called us to be. We don't want anyone here to be like the Achan in the camp, hiding the hidden bar of gold under his tent, and the whole church, the whole people of God suffering defeat because of sin that is cherished in our midst. We are called to offer ourselves up to God as a living sacrifice for him. So that what Jesus has made us and declared us to be by the Holy Spirit would be more and more evident to a watching world. One church, one holy church, one holy Catholic church. Probably the question I'm asked more than any other is, wait a second, are we a Roman Catholic church? Because we confess this in the creed. And here is where I throw off my garment and I reveal my Jesuit garb, sent here by a secret mission from the Vatican to draw us back into the fold of Rome. Catholic, that was a joke, by the way, for those of you who struggle with cross-cultural humor. Catholic literally means according to the whole. It refers to what is wide and universal as opposed to what is narrow and cramped and sectarian. And when we confess, as we do most weeks, that the church is Catholic, we're saying the church is much bigger than this. This is just the tiniest little shard of the church. The church is the great host of the redeemed that stretches through space and across time. The church above and the church below. The great company of those bought by the blood of Jesus in heaven and on earth. 10,000 times 10,000. And when we say the church is Catholic, we're saying the arms of the church are as wide as the arms of God. The church is for everyone, for everyone, not just my nation or my race or my class or my gender or my personality type. The church is bigger than any of that. And the church is much bigger than any one denomination or expression. One new humanity including those who are near and those who are far off. There is no one who the church of God does not welcome. We are, I suppose, a non-denominational church, which could mean that we are the most sectarian possible representation of the church. But this needs to be a church that recognizes the wider Catholicity of what God has created. That's why we want to spend as much time as possible swimming in the great river of the Christian tradition down through the ages, historic, global Christianity, what all Christians everywhere have always believed. That's why we confess the Nicene Creed, the one creed that is truly ecumenical, confessed by Orthodox and Catholics, Presbyterians and Pentecostals, the core of what makes us Christians. The church is Catholic because Christ is Catholic. He is a universal Christ. He is the one who fills all things. 
And he is the one uniting all things in the universe in himself. And therefore, the church is called by Jesus to be as broad and as diverse as the human race itself. And really, the Catholicity of the church is why we believe so passionately that we are called to be a missionary church. It's not just for us. It's for everyone. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to all creatures under heaven. Because every tribe and every tongue and every nation is called to be part of the great choir singing, Is he worthy? Yes, he is. And the Holy Spirit is at work all over the world drawing people into that choir. But we look and we say, there are slots that are still empty. There are places that are still not filled. There are people that have no representatives in the chorus of the redeemed. The church must be wider. There are more that God is calling in. And it's essential that we have a wider, greater, broader vision of the church than this humble little instance of it. One holy Catholic and finally apostolic church. As Paul says in verse 20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is only the church so long as she is faithful to the apostolic doctrine and practice. We're not given the liberty to reinvent the church afresh in every generation to meet the needs or the demands of the age. For those who marry the spirit of the age are destined to become a widow. We're called to be in historic continuity with the witness of the apostles because Jesus himself has appointed them. They are the rock on which Jesus is building his church. And he has sent and commissioned them to speak on his behalf. And we notice after Pentecost, when the church is created, when the spirit is poured out, one of the signs of the spirit is that the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And though the apostles have long since died and gone to be with their Lord, they still speak to us today through their inspired writings, which are not just their personal insights and reflections. They are the voice of the living God. And we see in Revelation chapter one, the final eschatological vision of the church that the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Of course, there are people who, who don't like this certain wings of the church who find the apostles very constricting and prefer their version of the sweeter, gentler, kinder Jesus of the gospels. This week on, on Twitter, someone was saying, perhaps Paul was the false teacher that Jesus warned us against. Perhaps we need to chuck out all these apostles and focus only on the Jesus of the Gospels. Let me tell you that we have no access to Jesus except through the witness of the apostles. The Gospels themselves, the four Holy Gospels, come to us 
through the apostles, the apostles Matthew and John, and then the apostolic associates Mark and Luke, who ministered with Peter and Paul, respectively. Let me tell you, those who reject the witness of the apostles in Holy Scripture always end up with a false Christ of their own devising. Someone who just mirrors and reflects who we prefer him to be. We do not want to make that mistake. You know, the purity of the gospel is the responsibility of the entire church. Of course, pastors and elders and teachers are called to a higher standard, but it is the responsibility of everyone sitting here today to make sure that we do not wander from the apostolic and prophetic foundation of Holy Scripture. And we're all called to have the spirit of the Bereans carefully checking to make sure that everything that is set up here actually matches up with what God has said in Holy Scripture. And no pastor should ever be offended to be challenged by anyone in the church saying, wait a second, where is that in the Bible? I would love to have that question more often. I would love to see open Bibles and pages being turned as we go through, because the only power that we have is in the word of God. Listen, we all have the temptation to have itching ears, hearing only what we want to hear, only what affirms us and validates our pet projects and interests. And the great danger is that we all fail to guard the good deposit that has been passed down to us from the apostles through the faithful hands down through the centuries. And we try to remove that apostolic foundation and replace it with something else. And I think to myself, given human sin and human selfishness and human self-deception, What's really surprising is not that anyone wanders from the faith, but that anyone at all stays faithful, let alone for 20 centuries. Because it is the chief shepherd himself who is the one who keeps the church faithful. Rebuking, exhorting, correcting us, guiding us with his rod and with his staff, And at the very darkest moments of the church, when she seems hopelessly lost in sin and corruption, and the gospel has almost seemed to have been forgotten, a light arises, the voice of the gospel is heard, the Holy Spirit speaks, there's reformation, there's revival, there's a fresh wind blowing through the church. Because Jesus is the one who makes the church one, who makes her holy, who makes her Catholic, who keeps her apostolic. Brothers and sisters, we confess our faith in the church today because we believe in God. And when we say, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, this is not an expression of our belief in human possibility not in the leaders or the members of the church. We're confessing our faith in the divine promise because God's the one who has created the church. God's the one who sustains the church. God's the one who provides for the church. God's the one who protects the church. And God is the one who is going to perfect 
the church at the end of history and reveal it as something incredibly dazzling and beautiful. And what we need more than anything is to be carried in the spirit and have our eyes opened to be shown the bride, the wife of the lamb descending from God out of heaven to this earth, shining with the glory of God, brilliant as Jasper, clear as crystal, a city whose light is the lamb. Where the servants of Jesus see his face because they have his name written on their foreheads. And there we will reign with him forever and ever. Shall we pray? Shall we pray together for the church, which desperately needs our prayers and the help of God? Heavenly Father, this church and the church have no meaning and no hope apart from you. And we confess our faith in you again, O Lord. There are so many reasons for us to be discouraged and even despairing when we look at uh, how gross and sinful and stupid your church can be, O Lord. Um, And many of us here have been deeply wounded by her. And all we can do is cry out to you that you would have mercy on us, O Lord. Because we are all sinful, we're all divisive, we're all unholy, and we have all hurt one another. And so we ask that, Father, you who have already given your son for the church, that you would pour your spirit afresh on her. We pray for the church around the world. We pray for the church across seemingly insurmountable boundaries, that you would bring, holy, uh, you'd bring unity, that you would make her holy, O Lord, that you would achieve your purposes through her. And Lord, you've given us the gift of this church. And we ask that you would help us to love her, to serve her, to sacrifice ourselves for her. Bind us closely to one another in love, O Lord. Fill each of us and all of us together with your Holy Spirit. And help us seek and find our unity in your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.